0: This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message.
1: Yeah, uh, Matthew 19. uh, That's what we'll read from this morning. Uh, We'll start in verse... We'll start in verse 16 down through 22. Is what we'll read. Yeah, I, I've just been trying to get over this sore throat stuff, so y'all bear with me. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too bad. Would y'all stand? Man, Matthew 19, verse 16. <clears throat> Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions.
2: Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do um, come again this morning looking to you and asking, Father, for uh, your enablement. Lord, I, I ask that you enable me to receive from you the very word you would have delivered and to deliver it. Grant, I pray, accuracy, and clarity. And Father, we pray, open all of our ears to hear what You're speaking. Lord, we're blessed to have Your Word. You've given us Your Word, revelation of Yourself in in written form. And Lord, may we uh, hear it and treat it as such, such as it is, Your Word. Father, we pray that you make it effective in our hearts so that if there's a person in this room today who does not know you in truth, by the power of your Spirit, Lord, we pray. Take your Word home to that heart or to those hearts so that they see their need for a Savior and cry out to you. And Lord, those in this room who know You, love You, again, we pray, make make the hearing of Your Word effective so that we are continually conformed, changed to the image of Christ. So that we, on a continual basis, fall out of love with the world and more in love with You. Lord, may, as we shall see in this passage today, may You, be the real treasure of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you, but I had a great New Year's. Um, Bringing in the new year. I slept right through it just fine. I was happy with that. (laughs) It may, you know, I I don't think there's a New Year's that goes by that I don't think about. Uh, I mean, this may seem like a small thing, and in one sense it is, but um, New Year's Eve used to be such a big part of my life. And uh, it may sound funny, but I I really rejoice in the fact that I can sleep through it. (laughs) And and, uh, it's it's just a whole different experience. Than it was twenty five years ago, I thank the Lord for that um, I did want to mention earlier that Miss Joe was not feeling well, so please remember her as well. You pray her and michael've been several people sick we're going to look this morning uh, at the Matthews account here of, of and we may make some references to Luke and Mark there. if you want to know where the parallel passages are. Um, they're found in Mark 10, 17 through 30, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. Now those other accounts of the same, uh, same event that we're looking at here. Jesus dealing with um, the rich young ruler. Um, we know that he's young because verse 20 in our text today tells us, tells us that. The young man said to him, and Luke is actually the, ones that, the one that mentions that he is a ruler, um, probably meaning a ruler of the synagogue, which, which would have meant that he was a very religious man and um, highly esteemed. And so that, I, I think, even makes it a little more interesting that he's coming, coming to Jesus, asking what seems to me to be a very, very sincere question. I often hear it said, I have heard it said, uh, oftentimes, that everybody, in fact, I've heard it said this way, everybody's searching for God. And so our job as Christians is point them in the right direction. That is to, to point them to Christ. Or as some have said, you know, everybody's searching for God, so our job is to introduce them to Him. Well, um, I do think it 's true that everybody 's searching that 's where I would put my period <laughs> everybody 's searching but i don 't think everybody 's searching for god and I do think it 's true that uh, many people like myself um, this, this was this was my experience was searching i don 't i don 't think you know particularly uh for for God. Um, but, in that quest, um, God revealed Himself in what I call a grace invasion. He just invaded my life. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that. You know, invasion, a lot of times, is not such a good thing. You think about a foreign army uh, coming and invading our land. That's kind of a scary thought. But, spiritually speaking, that's what happened. Uh, a foreign power much greater than I, invaded my life. And it's been a glorious, glorious thing. Thankful to God for that. So everybody is searching. And I think we see that expressed in the story of this, uh, this young ruler as well. We see, you know, like I say it manifests in different forms. Apparently this is a religious man, so one way he's, one way he's going about his search... One way that's being expressed in his life, his quest, is that he he is religious. He's he's, in fact he's excelling in his religious work. Other people do it in different ways, and some people combine many many ways. And I think the bottom line is is this, and I've said this before. There's there's a real, and and certainly not original by me, but there's a real sense in which uh, everybody is is looking to be. Happy. Everybody's looking to be uh, made made complete in a sense, to be fulfilled. And, and, and this may it may sound like it's oversimplifying it, but I, but I like the word uh, happy because I think that really is a good way to describe it. Everybody wants to be happy. Blaise Pascal and I, I don't have the exact quote before me, but he he, and he said that's that's the reason everybody does what they do, including those. May sound strange, but including those who commit suicide, they have the same motivation as those who give their lives to a a, a uh, occupation or to a, a, a relationship. Everybody's in this quest to be happy, and and they're trying to attain it. And I think the scripture uh, bears that out as well. Now, I want to look at this young man this morning that meets with Jesus here in verse 16. Behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, he asks here what I think is a, a crucial question and a question uh, that I, I think everybody, every individual ought to be asking. Or at least I can say it this way: If you if you don't already know Jesus, because that is salvation. So if you're not already saved, if you don't already know Jesus and are in relationship with Jesus Christ, um, by relationship as He defines it, not as 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 we do. Um, if you're not already there, then you ought to be asking this question. That is, you ought to be searching for truth and what uh, and and or how to obtain eternal life. I don't think it's a bad question, and one reason I say that is is this. Let me, in fact, we'll see in a moment Jesus answer, but let me point out a couple other places where this is asked uh, similarly. Um, one is in Acts two. And I just I just mention this because a lot of times the young man the young man here gets criticized for 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 how he asks you know what must I do? But again, I think it's a legitimate question, and I think uh, it, it deserves a real answer. Um, it, it probably is true that he's thinking in a works-oriented manner because he, he's in, involved in in the religion of the Pharisees here. Uh, so that that and plus, you know, he doesn't apparently know the Lord at this at this point. So that probably is true. But nevertheless, uh, people don't always even Christians, we don't always express uh, our desires just exactly right, do we? In Acts, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and the response in verse 37 is this. this is the response by the crowd there who heard him preach. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, notice in verse 38, rather than um, say something like, well, you don't do anything. Peter Peter tells them something to do. (laughs) He says, here's what you do. Verse 38, repent, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter gives them something. Here's something that you do. It is required that you do something. And by the way, I think that, uh, I think Jesus' answer is even a little more shocking, but we'll come to that in a moment. Another case in Acts 16 is where Paul and Silas are imprisoned and, uh, they are released. They're singing praises to God at midnight and the earthquake comes and the chains fall off. And then the jailer uh, thinks that everybody's escaped and he wants to kill himself. And Paul, Paul assures him that everybody is there. And so Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer says, apparently to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, there's the same question again. What must I do to be saved? And, and again, Paul doesn't Paul doesn't attack the question or, or, you know, or try to, you know, well, you don't do anything. He he gives him something to do. So they said, again, the question is, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, or they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot that goes into both of those things. Peter's answer in Acts 2.38. Uh, Paul and Silas' answer here in Acts 16. Uh, I would say they don't, they don't really, uh, in, in one sense, you could say they don't give us the full story. They, but they sum it up. Here's what you need to do. Believe. Repent and Believe. Believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a must. In other words, trust the Lord. You must trust the Lord in order to be saved. Repent. That is, turn from sin, selfishness, turn from living for self. That's going to be key in this section we're talking about today. Turn from a life, a totally self-absorbed life, and live unto Christ. Live for the glory of Christ. That's what you must do in order to be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Now let's go back to Matthew 19. And look at this young man's question again. Verse 16. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? In verse 17, here's Jesus' response. And it. His first response is certainly not what the, the man's expecting here. Uh, why do you call me good? Um, there, there, there is a textual variance here. And I'm, I mention that because if you're looking at something like the NIV or the NASB or the ESV, you're going to see some different wording there. It's going to say something like, why do you ask me concerning what is good? All right, and based on different Greek texts. Now I'm reading from the New King James. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. Now, um if you if you read Mark's account, Mark 10, read Luke's account, Luke 18, this it's recorded virtually the virtually the same wording as what I just read here and incidentally no textual variance in those verses. Um why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, why does Jesus go there? Why does why does he Why does he do that? Or why does he say? Ask, why do you ask me concerning what is good? Now, I think there's a, It implies that this young man has a misconception. About what is good, and I think that is probably uh, most obvious in the fact that he apparently doesn't really recognize who Jesus is. Now, it's it's, it's commendable that he recognizes uh, Jesus' authority. Comes to him. I mean, he, he seems to be perfectly sincere here. Uh, he himself is a leader, or a ruler of the a synagogue, probably as I mentioned before. And yet he is, he's bringing a question to Jesus, so he's acknowledging that Jesus is a respected rabbi. And there's no mention here of him trying to test Jesus like the scribes and Pharisees would so often do. It just, it it, it all seems to be total sincerity. Teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? He, He comes to the right person. He's asking the right question, and yet even though he comes to the right person, he doesn't seem to really understand who he is. Now let me let me say this. I, I do not think Jesus' statement that in Jesus statement he's denying his own goodness. In other words, when Jesus says why do you call me good? No one is good but God. No one is good but one God. Jesus is not saying you're not good, and neither am I. So don't call me good. There's only one that's good, and that's God. Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. So, so he, he's not saying don't call me good. I'm not good. Only God is good. Again, I think he's trying to stir something up in this guy's mind. Why do you call me good? Why do you use that so loosely? There's only one good. In other words, it's sort of a rhetorical way of saying, are you calling me good because you really understand that to be the case? Are you calling me good because you recognize that I am God in the flesh? There's only one good, and that is God. And that, by the way, is, is even denied in our day. In fact, in the culture that we live in today, good is denied. That is, I mean, that there can be any absolute good. It's, it's, it's part of the product of what, what we've been taught today and what we're being taught today, what we're teaching our kids today in the public schools this is all, you know, it's All everything you look around, everything you see, everybody you see, it's all the product of evolution. There is no God to tell us what is good or bad. If there's good or bad at all, uh, it, it comes about by consensus. You know, we decide that there are certain things that we don't like, and so we call that bad. There are certain things we do like, so we call that good. And even that could be relative to the different country you're in, the different company you're in, you know, who you who you hang with. But there's no absolute good. So it's, it's worth noticing here that Jesus is talking about an absolute good. <laughs> That's the way the Bible always speaks. There are absolutes. And what determines whether something is good or not good, I would say, is... What God thinks about it. In other words, is it consistent with God's character in nature? Or is it in in some way anti-God? And what I'm saying is simply this. The ultimate standard of good is God Himself. Because, as Calvin said about Jesus, He is not only good, He is goodness. So, He defines it he He's the standard he defines good, and I think all of that is built into what Jesus is saying here. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God and that's also going to be pertinent to the rest of the discussion here and Jesus goes on, and this is the answer that I was referring to earlier that When you talk about doing something, this answer is even more shocking than what Peter says in Acts 2 and what Paul says in Acts 16. Jesus says, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Wow. Keep the commandments. Obey the Word. If you want to enter into life, keep God's commandments. Boy, we spend a lot of time... Preaching against that, don't we? <laughs> don't, don't, don't do anything. Don't keep the commandments. You'll become legalistic. If you want to enter life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now, let me say this. I'm going to have to, just to make this statement, I'm going to have to jump ahead a little bit, but I'll, Lord willing, come back to this later. I've I divided this up into two parts. I wanted to cover 16 through 22 today. Come back, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Brother Carl's going to bring the Word tonight. I want to come back to this next Sunday morning uh, in verse 23. Um, but let, let me just point out this statement in verse 26. When the disciples asked, who can be saved? Jesus responded this way in verse 26. With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now what he's referring to there is his statement in verse 24 that, it, that it's hard for rich people to be saved. I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, in the Greek that word camel means camel. And the word eye of the needle means eye of the needle. (laughs) He's just using something as an illustration, something that is impossible precisely to make the point that it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. And so they are astounded by that. And frankly... Every one of us ought to be astounded that any of us are saved, because really uh, the impossibility factor doesn't—that doesn't just come into play with rich people. Um, it's impossible for anybody to be saved apart from God. So it's a divine work. God does it. Now, why, why am I bringing that in here? Because if you go back to Jesus' answers here. Keep the commandments. He's giving this man an impossible standard. Impossible standard. Look, look at the commandments. In fact, the man asked, "Which ones?" Verse eighteen. That's good. And he, won't, he It's like a lot of say today. How many times you had somebody ask you, "Can I do thus and so and still go to heaven?" <laughs> It's like this guy wants to know which ones do I need to keep? That way I can, you know, I don't want to waste time doing all these other ones. Can I, can I can I omit that and still make it? Which ones? And Jesus gives him five here of the of the ten, and then of the ten commandments. What we call the ten commandments, the ten words, and then uh, what Jesus himself calls the second. Greatest commandment in verse 19. Here they are. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just think about those briefly for a moment and, and, and keeping them. Now, on the surface, I mean, if we, just, if we just didn't go too deep, like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, just on the surface, some of these are keepable. And we could, we could do them and pat ourselves on the back. I mean, look, he says, y- you shall not murder. Here's one you've got to keep. You shall not murder. And, and I think most of us, you know, could, could, I'm not sure about Ms. Scott, but I mean, most of us could say we've never murdered anybody, right? Okay. <laughs> I've never murdered anybody. You shall not commit adultery. Well, okay. A lot of people haven't committed adultery. You shall not steal. A lot of people haven't stolen. Although it's getting tougher as we go through the list, right? I mean, some things sometimes some people steal and they don't think of it as stealing. If you walk into a convenience store and pick something up off the rack and walk out of it, I mean, everybody understands that shoplifting. But if you take five extra minutes on your break at work, a lot of people don't think that's stealing. So, I mean, they're, they're already getting tougher here. But, but, you know, it's possible. I mean, you could just not steal. You shall not bear false witness. I mean, you see, it just got even harder. Because who among us can say that we've never misspoke about anything, misrepresented anything, or even borne false witness against our neighbor? Well, come on, everybody's had somebody say, how do I look? And you say, oh, you look great. <laughs> and you, you bore false witness. I found that I have a regular habit of lying. You know, pe- people will say, uh, uh, you know, what's up? And I'll say, not much. That's a lie. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of stuff happening. A lot of stuff going on. So, I mean, they get harder as you go through here. Then he says, Honor your father and your mother. Nobody's, nobody's done that perfectly. I mean, ho- hopefully everybody in this room honors their father and their mother. And You know, when you're speaking in general. But we, we can all look back on times when we have dishonored them. And then, the last one just really blows it all out of the water. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, nobody's done that. Jesus is putting before him what i believe jesus word here in other words if you do these you'll live but there's a problem you're not going to do them matter of fact like i said earlier if if we go deeper it's it's probably correct to say we've all committed murder we've all committed adultery we've we've all stolen cuz go back and read the sermon on the mount look at how jesus defines those things, how he applies those commandments. So he, he gives him a real standard. I mean, he's not making it up, and he's, he's, not, he's not teasing or lying or anything like that. Hey, you want to live? You want to enter life? Keep the commandments. But the problem again is it's an impossible standard given our sin. Now, this this is what I was alluding to earlier when I said the man has a a false concept about what is good. Well, one reason I said that, I already pointed out is because he he's having a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, the only one who really is good, and he doesn't even though he calls him good teacher, he's just using that, you know, it seems like to me in a well, not in a, a serious enough way. So he doesn't recognize the true goodness of jesus he sees him as a great teacher he sees him as a religious authority but not as god in the flesh but secondly he has a false concept about himself and his own goodness right if I say he doesn't really understand good and what is good look at verse 20 after after getting a list of the commandments and by the way it's interesting to me that those are jesus pulls those from the second table of the law um, the, the five that he lists there: you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit uh, murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, um, have to do with vertical, or oh, I'm sorry, horizontal uh, relationships, rather than vertical, our relationship with God. And, you know, that's kind of where you would expect him to go first, and then uh, certainly the uh, the quote from Leviticus 19, which sums it up in verse 19. Honor your father and your mother. I'm sorry. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Again, that's horizontal relationships. And the man says this in verse 20. All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Now, I, I, it's probably true that in one sense what he's saying is correct. Paul said about himself that concerning righteousness, which is of the law, I'm blameless. I was blameless. Paul kept the law. So if you're just talking about, you know, outwardly and doing, keeping all of the ceremonial aspects of the law, Paul was rigorous in that, and this man probably was too. So he was blameless in that sense, perhaps, like Paul. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But again, when you go back to the way Jesus applies the law in the Sermon on the Mount, when you bring it down to the heart level, there's not one single person who's blameless. There's not one single person who can honestly say, correctly say, I have kept these from my youth. That's a lie. So, I mean, he just lied right there. But he sees himself, obviously, as being essentially good. Now, I don't know if I have the, you know, the words to express this, but I, I, I don't think I could overemphasize what a problem that is. I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm not, I'm not real concerned like a lot of people are. In the world of psychology today, I'm not real concerned about this problem with low self esteem. Because I'm not saying it's not a problem at all. I mean, I know you can beat somebody up emotionally and do damage. Um, But, bottom line, there's a far bigger problem out there with people thinking too much of themselves than too little of themselves. In fact, that's that's one reason people get depressed and have what we call a low self-esteem because they think they deserve better he he thinks evidently that he is essentially good now i, I don't <clears throat> i think this is hard to get away from even as a christian now Probably everybody in here would agree. You you can read principles in the Word of God and know they're true because they're there. Now, I see it. It's there. It's written. And because you trust God's Word, you say, this is God's Word. I know God doesn't lie, so I know it's true. But then, you know, it's like you have that on an intellectual level but then really feeling the the, the the weight of it and the truth of it and the impact of it down deep at the core of your being. That's a different story. So, that's the way I think it is when we, when we talk about the doctrine of depravity. Say, man is deprived. But we read in Jeremiah, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. And, of course, we say amen because there it is. We read it. We see it. And we don't want to go against God's Word. But is, is, that, is that truth so real to us and true to us that it impacts how we think and how we live? Or do I still kind of go about like this man thinking, well, I'm not so bad, Really? Now, I look back, you know, my own testimony before, uh, before I was saved, and, you know, there did a lot of stupid things, a lot of things I'm ashamed of, and this and that. But, I'll I tell you this, in, in all honesty, and this would be true of probably most of us in here, maybe, maybe not of some, but I think if you had known me then, your, your impression would have, would have been, nonetheless, with all, you know, with all the ungodliness, probably, your impression would have probably pretty been, well, he's a pretty good guy. But that's the way we tend to think, right? And that's the way, certainly the way we think about ourselves. Well, I haven't, uh, at least those of us who haven't committed murder and all, well, well, I haven't actually murdered anybody, and I never intend to hurt anybody, and my sins, yes, I'm a sinner, but my sins aren't aren't as bad as some. Okay? On one level, that's true. Maybe. I would, I would say murder is, is a worse thing than maybe bearing false witness. But on the other hand, both of these things make you a violator of the law Both of those things set you at enmity with God. Both of those things have eternal consequences. So, in another sense, sin is sin in the sense that it separates us from God. In the sense that we deserve God's wrath, we deserve God's punishment. But if we haven't done certain sins, we tend to think of ourselves as Basically good. And I think that's the attitude of this young man. Jesus says, here, you do these commands and you'll live. And he says, I've, I've done all of those. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he, he doesn't, even though he's, he's, he's now he may be deceived. When I said he was lying earlier, I don't mean that he, he was necessarily consciously lying. Maybe he thinks he did keep all the commandments. He's just deceived. But in spite of that, He doesn't feel complete, does he? I mean, he just said, what do I do? And Jesus said, here's what you do. And he said, okay, I've done that. So you would expect him to say, wow, good, I'm in. I've done that, everything's good. I've kept all the commandments since my youth. And and, and now you've just, uh, you've just given me assurance that I have eternal life and, and go, you know, skipping along and singing and praising the Lord. He doesn't do that because he knows there's something lacking. And Jesus wasn't giving him that answer in order to give him assurance of eternal life. Jesus is poking at his heart. Getting down to you know, where the real issue is. All these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And again, that's a, that's a great question. I'm a very religious person. I've got very good morals. I've honored my father and my mother. I've not killed anybody. I've not stolen. I've done all of these things from my youth. I, I I don't feel satisfied. What do I lack? He recognizes that He lacks something. And so Jesus says, verse 21... If you want to be perfect, here's what you do. Now, that, that word perfect is, is used commonly throughout the New Testament. And it's the idea of completion. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Because the man's question was, what do I lack? I, I, I want to I obtain eternal life. Something's missing. What do I need to fill in the blank, to fill in the hole?" to make me complete and that's what Jesus is saying if you want to be complete then here's what you do now this this may even be more shocking than his first answer keep the commandments Jesus says in verse 21 if you want to be complete go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, I want to, I want to be crystal clear here because it's so easy often to be misunderstood. Um, is Jesus preaching works salvation? The young man says, what do I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Well, I've done that. What do I still lack? Like? Well. If you want to be complete, then you sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me, and you're good to go. I think everything Jesus is saying is true. Is he preaching a works salvation? I don't think so at all. I think what Jesus is doing here is exposing this man's real problem. I think Jesus may have said different things with a different individual. He knows this man's specific problem, and that's what he hones in on. And it, it, in one sense, it's the same problem we all have. It manifests in a different way, um, but it's 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 a problem we all share, and that is... Not loving Christ supremely. He has to be supreme in our lives. That's what Jesus is hitting at here. You want to be complete? Here's the deal. Something something else has your heart. That's strange, isn't it? Because this this man has has a desire for eternal life. And, and, and more to eternal life, when Scripture speaks of eternal life, it's not just talking about existing forever. Everybody's going to do that. Even people in hell are going to exist forever. When Jesus talks about eternal life, He's, he's talking about being in right relationship with Him. And it doesn't start... When you die, it starts when you enter into right relationship with Him. When, when a person is born again, you, you are now partaker of eternal life. In fact, let me read you real quick a definition that I thought was really good. I ran across this week. Um, I really like the way it was worded. Yep, wrong page. Here we go. <clears throat> this is uh, this definition is by a man named William Hendrickson. It's being quoted here by John MacArthur. Um, life means active response to one's environment. That tr- sounded strange to me at first, but the more I got to thinking about it, <laughs> the more, the more I, th- I think I could see what he was saying. Here's the definition of life. He, he, he's meaning in terms of Scripture here, life means active response to one's environment. Then eternal life must mean active response to that which is eternal, namely God's heavenly realm. Now, if you think in the physical for just a minute, natural, and physical, a dead person, one reason we know they're dead is they're not responding at all, right, to their environment. That's absence of life. There's no active response to their environment. And you think about somebody who's thought to be what we call sometimes a brain dead. And they'll have them on uh, do brain scans and have them on monitors. And what are they looking for? Activity. Active response. They're trying to see if there's any activity. And, and if there's not, they assume they're, they're dead. Life means active response to one's environment. So eternal life must mean active response to that which is eternal, namely God's heavenly realm. Okay. So what the what the man is expressing a desire for is is that that kind of active response to eternal things. Now this is what I find interesting. He's he's expressing that desire. I, I want he's. He, He's expressing a desire for that which is most desirable. But he doesn't fully understand what it is. Jesus is eternal life. He's looking at eternal life. And he's asking the question, what do I do to obtain eternal life? To the very one who is life himself. So, there's a problem there. On one hand, he's expressing a desire for the right thing. He's saying the right words. But yet, Jesus is right there. And he's not he doesn't seem to be expressing any desire for Jesus. And there's no eternal life without Jesus. Now, how do I know he doesn't really desire Jesus? Well... Because that's that's exactly what Jesus brings out here. That's where He takes him with His instruction. Here, you want to be perfect? You want to be complete? Here's, here's all you have left to do. Sell everything you have. And he's talking about the very things that He knows, Jesus knows, are precious to this man. His possessions. But before I even complete this, let me say this. Don't... Don't... Think that this is not you and me. It is. In, in the world we live in. I know, I can compare myself to Bill Gates and say, you know what, I'm not rich. <laughs> He's rich. 50% of the world today living on $2 a day. When's the last time you tried to live on $2 a day? Fifty percent of the population of the world today living on that. So, sure, compared to Bill Gates, I'm not rich. But you compare me to those people, I'm rich. And frankly, I think that's a better way to apply what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he necessarily means those who are extremely wealthy, what we would call extremely wealthy. But those who possess this world's goods... Those who experience comfort here and now. He tells this man, he knows those things are precious to this man. And he says, look, you've got to get rid of all of it. Go go, sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And by the way, doesn't that imply that He was not, even though He said, I've done all these things from my youth, if He wasn't giving to the poor like He should, then hasn't He violated the very commands Jesus pointed out? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, you want to be complete, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come. Follow me. What, what really has to happen, and this, and this is across the board. This doesn't just apply to this young man. It doesn't just apply to some of us here. It applies to all of us. What really has to happen is there has to be an exchange. Temporal pleasure for infinite treasure. We, we, our, our heart is inclined, just like this young man's heart, to love, to love the things of this world. To love possessions. To love worldly comfort. Oh, think, think about the millions or billions of dollars that are spent in our country alone every day on luxuries. Now, it's not that those things are evil in and of themselves, and I don't mean to imply that. But I'm just saying that oftentimes it's a gauge, right, that that reveals where our heart is. In other words, why why do we put so much money into those things? It it provides a gauge for us. Do I spend as as much on possessions uh, uh, and and comforts, um, as much or more than I do on, let's say, Getting the gospel out or missions or something like that? Do I spend more money on making sure that the poor are fed or more money on things, accumulating things? That's, that's, there's a danger there. Now, here, here's the real issue. Do I treasure things, the things of this world, possessions, more than I treasure Christ? Even you can sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. That's, that's, not going to, that's not going to save you either. That might be a great thing to do, it's not going to assure you eternal life. But Jesus knows this man's heart, he knows where his problem lies. He loves his stuff more than he loves God. And that's, I think that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. You, that's got to change, he's saying. Keeping the law is an impossibility for you. You need a Savior. You're not really good. You may think you're good, you're, you're not really good. You're a sinner, and you need a Savior. You must take up your cross. That's included, by the way, in in, uh, in the other accounts. Take up your cross, come and follow me. Jesus is saying simply this: You you must be prepared. You want eternal life? It's 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 found only in me, Jesus. It's found only in me. And, and you must be willing to forsake all else for Christ. You must treasure Christ above all things. He's got to be your reward. He's got to be what you live for. Who you live for. So priorities change. Affections Change now. I wish, you know, uh, that we had a happy ending here for this young man. But look, look at the next verse, verse twenty-two. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, grieving. That's what the word means there. He went away grieving, for he had great possessions. He was very wealthy. And he loved his stuff. So when he heard what Jesus said, get rid of your stuff, follow me, he was grieved. He went away. He left Jesus. He walked away from Jesus grieving. Because he didn't get the answer he wanted. Which... And which would bring more grief? To lose Christ or to lose your stuff? Which is really your treasure, my treasure? Temporal pleasures of this world? All the goods that I can get out of it and accumulate. All the comfort that I can provide for myself. Our heavenly treasure in Christ. Which is really our treasure. The things of this world are Christ. Would you stand please? We'll just close with a word of prayer and just a reminder again. Brother Carl's going to preach tonight. Starts at six o'clock. Come on back. You can make it back. Let's just pray. Let's let's pray. What I was saying earlier, we're we're all um, we're all vulnerable to these things. You know, we live in the world and we're 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 constantly bombarded with. Uh, The idea that the world satisfies and that we should be in love with the world. Just like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, we need God's grace every moment. (laughs) Now it's like going through a minefield while we walk through this world. He must be our supreme treasure. Heath, you mind praying for us? We'll close.
0: This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80. Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.